Hey, this is Tyler Johnson, pastor of Mission Church located in Walnut Creek, California. I want to say thank you for tuning in. I hope this podcast inspires you, encourages you, and helps you live the life God called you to live. Enjoy. Hey, Mission Church, Pastor Tyler here. Back together again, Mission Church at home. I think this is week seven, maybe week eight. I think it's week seven. Um, I hope you're doing well. I hope you're being safe. Um, miss you like crazy. Uh, Rachel and I were just talking today of what uh, it's going to look like when we come back together. And I, I just can't wait to worship with you together. Can't wait to be able to preach in the same room with you. But until then, we're going to make the best of it. We're in a new series. If you're checking it out today, it's called How Great Is Our God? And we're finding that out in the book of Genesis. We went all the way back to the beginning, the first book of 66 books in the Bible. Uh, if you uh, weren't here last week, kind of did a flyby uh, at 30,000 feet of Genesis 1 and 2. Today I'm going to do uh, a little bit different. I'm going to look at really the heart of uh, what we lost uh, in the garden. In Genesis 2 and 3, God created this paradise. He created this uh, almost, you could say, utopian. It was, it was perfect. And then the enemy comes along and we forfeit what God had created as a gift to us. But what I love about Jesus is because we lost it, he always has a plan. He always has a plan of redemption. He redeems what we lost. So paradise is lost in Genesis, but it's redeemed on the cross. And so let's uh, go ahead and go into week two of Genesis. And uh, we're gonna start with Genesis three. Got a lot, so let's just go right to scripture. Always a good, uh, good idea to go to scripture. Here's what it says in Genesis three. The serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. One day he asked the woman, did God really say you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? Of course we may eat uh, fruit, uh, fr fruit from the trees in the garden, the woman replied. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we are not allowed to eat, God said. You must not eat it or even touch it. If you do, you will die. You won't die, the serpent replied to the woman. God knows that you, uh, your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it, and you'll be like God, knowing both good and evil. The woman was convinced. We're gonna talk about that today. She saw that the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious and she wanted the wisdom it would give her. So she took some of the fruit and ate it. Then she gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it too. At that moment, their eyes were opened and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. So they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. When the cool evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord God walking about in the garden. So they hid from the Lord God among the trees. Then the Lord God called to the man, where are you? I could preach a whole message on just where are you because of course God knew where he was physically. I think he was actually asking Adam, where are you spiritually? Let's keep going. He replied, I heard you walking in the garden, so I hid. I was afraid because I was naked. Who told you that you were naked? The Lord God asked. Have you eaten from the tree whose fruit I've commanded you not to eat? The man replied, it was the woman you gave me who gave me the fruit and I ate it. There you go. Come on now. Blaming in the very beginning. Blaming in Genesis, and we're still blaming today. I thought it was kind of funny. Uh, then the Lord God asked the woman, uh, what have you done? The serpent deceived me, she replied. That's why I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than all the wild animals, domestic and wild. You will crawl on your belly, groveling in the dust as long as you live, and I will cause hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head. That is a prophecy of Jesus destroying the enemy, and you will strike his heel, a.k.a. you'll be dead for three days. It's just gonna be a bruise. It's not gonna destroy you, and you will bruise his heel. Woo! That's a lot of scripture to start off with, but man, I love the Bible. Let's pray. 
God, I thank you. I thank you for what you show us in Genesis. I thank you that you give us this amazing word that is the light to our feet and the lamp for our path, Lord, that it illuminates uh, really where we're supposed to go. It illuminates who we're supposed to be. It illuminates how great you are and how good you are. Lord, we love you. We love you. Bless this message. My, my, may my words fall to the floor and your words soar. And everybody said amen. All right. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at three things from Genesis 3. Three things. The atmosphere the enemy created, we're going to talk about that. Second one is the lie is presented. And third, mankind is convinced. So the first one, atmosphere is created. Let's go back to Genesis 3. You'll see this verse. It says this. Did God really say you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? Stop. So Satan comes on the scene, and he proposes a question. Now, if you just read past this, you'll see, oh, did God really say? Well, you actually study the Hebrew and the text and how uh, the enemy is saying it. It's actually in a mocking fashion. It's in a um, uh, fashion of questioning, but it would be like this. How you doing? I'm great. I'm just fine. Well, obviously, by me answering that way, I'm not great. I'm not fine. I was using a tone and the way I delivered it to show you something. Well, this is a mocking question in the Hebrew. He's saying, did God really say you can't eat it? Did he really say that? Is that really what God said? Right there, the enemy is trying to create an atmosphere of doubt. Can I just tell you real quick that the enemy is not into arguing with you because if you start arguing, guess what? You'll win. The enemy doesn't want to actually go through the layers of who God is because if you actually start processing who God is, you process his omniscience, you process his goodness, you'll never say yes to the enemy. So the enemy's not trying to create an argument here. He's just trying to create an atmosphere of doubt. Something I've done in my life is that I look at my life and I go, hmm, when I walk away from that group of people, what kind of atmosphere was there? Because an atmosphere affects everything. It affects the way you think. It affects your emotions. It affects the way you dream. Rachel and I will go to a conference with some pastors, and we'll walk out of that conference, and we'll, our faith will be so high. We'll go to a church the same way, and we'll walk out, and we're like, we're going to change the world. We were in an atmosphere of faith. We were in an atmosphere of people declaring how big our God is. Oh, I love walking out of atmospheres like that. But Rachel and I have also been to some gatherings with some pastors where all it was was, Oh, our problems are so big. Oh, oh, the world's gone. America no longer wants Jesus. And we'll walk out of there being like, should we just quit ministry and just go work a corporate job? Because I guess all hope is lost. It was an atmosphere of defeat. I mean, the people that you're around is gonna affect the way that you dream, the way that you talk, the way you see people. You get an atmosphere of people who gossip. You're gonna see people differently because you're in an atmosphere of people gossiping. You know what I love about our church and about our staff? We're in an atmosphere of celebrating. Oh, I love hearing our staff talk about our people. I love hearing our staff talk about our church in this region. Man, they dream for you. They declare things for you. That's the kind of atmosphere you want to be around. Uh, Jesus would say it this way, or, or God would say it this way in the Old Testament. He chose Joshua and Caleb because they had a different spirit. They had an atmosphere of faith. And we want to create an atmosphere of doubt. And here's why. Let's, let's go another step uh, deeper. Think about when people talk to you if you believe in Jesus. I've literally heard this before. Oh, you believe in Jesus? Well, uh, you did graduate elementary school, right? You actually think a man came out of a tomb? You really believe that? What's fascinating about when somebody mocks my faith or mocks my belief system, they never actually want to actually have a real conversation about it. They never really want to have us go, all right, let's, let's process, I'll process my faith, you process your faith in evolution. Because the reality is, is I could go right back and go, well, you graduated elementary school too, you believe two stones hit together really hard and created all this? Where do the two stones come from? I, I would challenge anybody that loves to mock, anybody who loves to just dismiss Christianity, I would challenge you, go on the journey. Because the atmosphere of mocking, the atmosphere of actually just making one simple statement and moving on, you are missing out on the greatest thing ever, and his name is Jesus. And that's what the enemy loves to do. He loves to mock and create an atmosphere of doubt. So now that the atmosphere has been created by that one question, what does the enemy do? 
he starts to present the lie. So now that there is doubt, now that there is discouragement, have you ever been that way? Diagnose your emotions. Diagnose your surroundings. Hear, hear this real quick. When, when you are going through the week, do you find it kind of coincidental, if I could put it that way, that when you are in an atmosphere of discouragement, that's when you want to quit even more? Oh, the enemy knows when to sell a lie. The enemy knows when to sell something. He loves to create the atmosphere first, and then he loves to sell the lie second. Oh, learn from this. The enemy's using the same old tricks. So he creates the atmosphere, and here comes the lie. So he says this, this is a lie. You won't die, the servant replied to the woman. God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it, and you'll be like God, knowing both good and evil. Woo, what's the lie? What's the lie? Satan doesn't go after, does God exist? He doesn't go after that. He doesn't say, Look, there is no God. He's not really a God. He doesn't do that. Did you know the stats in the world that uh, about 3% are atheists and 4% are agnostics? So 7% of the world basically, nah, I know God, or I really don't care about God. But 93% of the world believes there is a God. The enemy knows he can't refute and tell you there is no God because of, of creation, because of what's around. People know, it says in Ecclesiastes, that God took this thing called eternity and placed it in our hearts. We know we're eternal beings. We, we, we sense it, we feel it. So 93% of the world knows there's a God. So the enemy's not gonna go after there is no God. He doesn't go after the power of God. He doesn't say oh, God's not that powerful. No, you, you look at creation, you look at the universe, he holds the, uh, everything in the palm of his hands. He doesn't go after the power of God. That would be a silly thing to go after. It's too easy to refute it. He doesn't go after the law of God. He doesn't start going through all the rules of God. No, that's not what he does. Here's what the enemy does. He goes after the goodness of God. The enemy creates an atmosphere of doubt. And then after the atmosphere of doubt is created, he goes after his goodness. I'll have conversations with pastors uh, in the Bay Area. And one of my buddies, Adam Smalkham, shout out, uh, Vibe Church, amazing church in our Bay Area, doing great work. Uh, we were golfing this one time and we we're just talking about what do you want people to say when they leave your church? Like when they come and encounter uh, uh, God at your church, what do you want, them, what do, what do you want to happen? And we we're talking about it, and I said, to be honest, I have one answer. I want people leaving church saying, man, God is good. Because a lot of people in the Bay Area don't believe God is good. They think God is angry, that God is distant, that God is not around, that he's not involved. And the Bible says, taste and see that God is good. The way the enemy will try to control you and direct your steps is to sell you this lie. God does not have his best for you. God's plan is not the best plan for your life. God's redemption, it's not for you. God is not going to redeem you. He's gonna punish you. Oh, the enemy wants to attack your view of how good God is. You start reading the Bible, you're gonna see a good God. You're gonna see a gracious God. You're gonna see a jealous God. He's so in love with you that he gets jealous when something else is first. Woo! Don't we all wanna be everybody's first choice? Of course, of course we do. This is our God. How great is our God? Can I say it that way? <laughs> and then last but not least, after the atmosphere is created, after the lie is presented, now mankind is convinced. It says this, it says, the woman was convinced, she saw the tree was beautiful, and its fruit looked delicious, and she wanted the wisdom it would give her. She took some of the fruit and ate it. Then she gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it too. And at that moment, their eyes were opened, and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. So they sewed fig leaves to cover themselves. Stop. Oof. I don't know about you, but until Scripture becomes the ultimate authority in your life, you'll be convinced by the enemy all the time. Until you actually believe in God's goodness, the enemy will be able to convince you to do other things. Let me, let me, let me tell, put it this way. Our culture is all about how we feel. It's about affirmation, not information. Just affirm how I feel. Affirm what I think. Just affirm it, affirm it. I don't want information. I just want affirmation. Well, can I just tell you, your feelings are wrong all the time. 
What you sense in a room, you're wrong all the time. I'll even be done preaching sometimes, and I'll preach a message. I'll tell myself as a communicator. I'll preach a message, and I'll get done, and I'll be worshiping the last song at, at service, and I'll go, Lord, I'm so sorry. That was the worst message I've ever preached. Oh, my gosh, that was terrible. I hope people come back. And the people come up to me afterwards. Oh, that was the greatest message I've ever heard. Oh, my, that was, like, from the throne room. I was like, what? I, but you but you didn't say like, amen, you weren't shouting me down. You're just sitting there and you were kind of like staring at me. So I sensed that you were angry at me. You hated the message. Oh no, I was just processing. I'd never heard a truth like this. This was the greatest message ever. Have you ever felt like the way you feel in a room? That's how everybody else feels in the room? That's not actually true. I love when people are like, oh, I just trust my gut. You trust your gut? I trust the word of God. Okay, let me, let me, let me put it this way. Uh, so I've been running uh, a lot every day and this little Apple watch, it has sensors on it. It senses things, I put it that way. So I start walking, it says, would you like me to record your walk? Start working out, would you like me to record your workout? I start running, would you like me to record your run? So every day I go out and I start my run and I have a, a number of miles I wanna run. Well, halfway through, I look down at my watch and my watch changed from running to walking. I didn't do it, it just did it on its own. And I was like, what just happened? And basically what I found out was, is I was running so slow that my watch thought I was walking. That I was like, there's no way this is a run. I'm gonna put it on walk. It changed, it changed my workout from running to walking because I was running so slow. And so I went into my phone, general settings, I Googled it, how do I turn this off? You, how, I mean, I got back and I looked at my workout and it said one point something miles running and then two point something miles walking. I was like, I never walked. And then I looked at my speed, I was like, that is a pretty slow run. And so I had to go in my phone and I had to find out how to turn off the sensors. And now I turn off the sensors, I go on the run and it stays on a run. Sensors, you don't, the sensors aren't perfect. Can I just tell you real quick that you need to turn your sensors off? And not, not meaning that you become numb to this world, but your sensors should not be the ultimate authority in your life. How you feel about things. He said that she, it felt like a good decision. It seemed right to her. She was convinced. She looked at it. It looked delicious. So I thought this should be a good decision. People who operate off of those things, comfort is your God. Because the way that you're trying to discern what your next step is, is what makes me feel most comfortable. No, no, no. Read the word of God. It's gonna actually lead you to places where you're gonna feel really uncomfortable. It's gonna lead you to places where you're gonna have to walk through storms instead of through sunny days because God has a plan in that storm. My hope for you is you look at these three points and just, again, let's look at it. You have the atmosphere that the enemy creates. He doesn't come with an argument. He comes to create an atmosphere. Every house, I want you to hear this real quick. The enemy would love to create an atmosphere in your house that is not of God. An atmosphere of discouragement, atmosphere of doubt, atmosphere of suspicion, atmosphere of fighting. Do not let, allow an atmosphere from the enemy to be in your house. Declare, declare today, write down today, man, what kind of house do I want? I want a house that is full of love. I want a house full of grace. I want a house full of truth. I want a house full of forgiveness. That's what I want the atmosphere in my house to be. And then the lie is sold. You know how many things that I've believed in my life that weren't true? I've said this before, I gotta say it again. A lie does not have to be true to be powerful. You just gotta believe it. Oh, and last but not least, very simple, but mankind is convinced. Can I, can I read you a verse in Matthew 6? It says this, but where, when your eye is unhealthy, your whole body is filled with darkness. And if the light you think you have is actually darkness, how deep that darkness is. Woof! What it's saying is, is, if you confuse the darkness for light, how dark will your life really be? Matthew 6, 23. Saying if, if you confuse what you think culture says is right, culture will tell you this is right. And if you confuse culture for the ultimate authority, oh, how dark could culture really get? Culture celebrates things that we should mourn over. People celebrate things that we should mourn over. So now that we looked at just the setup, this is just the, the setup to the message, I want us to look at how great our God is. I want us to look at three things that Jesus redeems that we lost in the garden. 
Because you hear this all the time. Well, Adam and Eve blew it. We lost it. It's over. We, uh, you know, they, in the garden, they blew it for everybody. Thanks a lot, Adam and Eve. Can't wait to get to heaven and talk to Adam and Eve about how they blew it. But what did they lose? When you really ask somebody, you know, hey, what, what, what did we lose in the garden? A lot of people couldn't actually tell you what we lost in the garden. I want to show you three things we lost in the garden and three things that Jesus brought back to redeem from the garden. And here it is. First one is this. First thing that Jesus does, how great he is, is he restores a deep relationship with God. It says in the garden that we were basically uh, uh, walking with God and talking with God. There was a deep relationship. Uh, you heard me say this last week, that mankind was naked before God and they felt no shame. A lot of Christians feel a lot of shame before God. A lot of Christians don't have a deep relationship with God because they actually hide from God instead of coming to God to redeem what's there. You know what a deep relationship is? When God actually restores the deepest, darkest parts of your soul that you don't want anybody to know about. Oh, the, the, the thoughts that you never knew anybody, you don't want people to know, the dreams you shouldn't have had that you had, the things that you've done and were done to you. Oh, the depths of your soul where nobody's touched, that you would allow God to actually see those things and say, God, could you redeem these things? And that's what Jesus did. He came on, died on a cross, conquered the grave, saying, all those deep things that are controlling you, all those deep things that make you process in a, in a, in a toxic way, God wants to actually encounter your life and not shame you, but he wants to restore those things and have a great relationship with you. Jesus restored the face-to-face relationship with God, that you can come to the throne room boldly, it says, confidently, and talk to your God. I love what it says in Luke 15. It's one of my favorite things. I talk about it a lot, but that's, hey, you go to Mission Church, you're gonna hear Luke 15 a lot. The father is waiting for the prodigal to come home. And Jesus is sharing this story of, here's why I came. I came to restore the prodigal son to the father. And it shows the father's heart, I love it. The father runs towards the son to cover up his shame so they can have a relationship, so there is no shame there anymore. Now, uh, shout out to my uh, uh, buddy, uh, Thomas Earl. You're the one who gave me this pearl. I loved it, and I've been waiting to share it. And he shared me uh, this with me when he came across it a while ago. Uh, basically, when the father was running to the son in that culture, it was shameful for a father, a patriarch, who's in a long gown to pull up his gown and start running towards his son. Oh, it's the most shameful thing. But the father, Jesus, took on the shame of this world so we would be covered by the things of heaven. He said, hey, I'll, I'll take on shame. I'll take shame on the cross so I can take shame off of my son. Oh, how great is our God that Jesus came and died on the cross and look what happens. He was stripped naked on the cross so you could be clothed again with righteousness. How great is our God that was restored on the cross. Second thing uh, that Jesus does is he creates a deep relationship with each other. He creates great community again. I, I, I'm gonna read you a verse in Genesis 2 that made my mind just says this in Genesis 2. Then the Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. Stop. Hold on a second. This is paradise. The Garden of Eden, the Trinity, God the Father, the Holy Spirit are there. Man's there. And it's not good yet? Hold on a second. You're telling me that God, the Trinity, and the Garden in Adam, that God didn't say this is perfect. He says not perfect for man. It's not good. Mankind needs community. Mankind needs a relationship. Mankind needs a helper. Ooh. Some of you people that are, I call retreat theology, the world's hurt you, people at church have hurt you, so you've just ran away and you don't want to have community with people anymore, you are missing out. God has redeemed community. Community is good. Relationship is good. I want, to, I want you to hear what it says here. He goes, I will make a helper who is just right for him. Stop. That word helper is not errand runner, okay? It doesn't mean errand runner. Now, this is the moment where Eve is created, but I'll make him a helper. It's, and this whole teaching here, uh, even in Genesis 2, it's not even just about marriage. It's about relationship in general. 
Do you know that Christianity is the only major religion that celebrates singleness? That it elevates singleness, that it celebrates the gift that it is in your life, that it's a great season of your life. Culture doesn't know how to celebrate singleness well. Uh, Other religions don't know how to celebrate singleness well. The Bible knows how to celebrate singleness well. But here's what the Bible never celebrate, isolation. Here's what you'll never see in the Bible celebrated, being by yourself and not being in community. Over and over again, you'll see community being celebrated, community being championed, being charged to live in community and to forgive and to reconcile relationships. And so you have this uh, word helper. Now in the Hebrew, the word helper here, it's, it's, it, I love, the, uh, I, I love the, the verbiage of it. It's not an errand runner. What it would look like is somebody who is different from you that can help you. So it'd be like uh, if I had a kid and he didn't uh, know algebra yet, I know algebra because I've taken it. I would go help my son with algebra because he doesn't know it. Basically what God's doing is I'm gonna create people different from you, Adam, and because they're different from you, they're gonna be able to help you because they're gonna have things you don't have. Your wife is a woman. She's gonna see things differently. She's going to live a, a, a different perspective and that's gonna help you, Adam, and Adam, you're gonna help her. You know what happens when you get in the community of the church? I have things you don't have and you're better because you know me. You have things that I don't have and I'm better because I know you. Look what happens in Acts 2. The gospel is preached. The gospel is preached to the birth of the church. You know what happens when the church is birthed again? Woof, it gets real good. Here's what happens. Community is birthed again. People are blessed because you have something that they have that they need, and you have something that they need. Look what it says in Acts 2. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the, uh, at, the, uh, at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who was in need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily who are being saved. Stop. Woof. Proverbs 8 says this, that when the Trinity was creating the earth, it says they were delighting in each other. That Hebrew word delighting is they were dancing. It was that one was being praised and one was praising. Another one was praising and being praised. And what happens for us is God says, we need to make man in our image. Do you know how God says it? Let, let us make man in our image, us, not singular. Even in Genesis 1, you'll see this. The, the verbiage that God uses for the, uh, his name is Elohim, Elohim. It's a plural it's a plural word to describe one God. It, it shouldn't work. Again, it makes my brain explode. It's the Trinity. He's saying, let us make man look like us. Man cannot look like us by himself. Man cannot reflect our image by himself. We do not actually reflect the Trinity by ourselves. We are a reflection of, of, of little Christ, but the really the fullness of it is when we get into a relationship with the community of God. Acts 2, if I could put it this way, is you see the dance of the church. It says that everybody was having stuff in common. They were actually, they had the synergy. It says that they, uh, they shared with those in need. I, they were there to help each other. Let me put it this way. Have you ever been at a dance, and at the dance you see um, somebody dancing, and you see like a big group dancing, and you're like, man, I wish I could dance like that. Josh Harper, shout out to you, our children's pastor. He can dance with the best of them. And so you're at a dance, and you see at a wedding, you see all these people just dancing. You're like, man, I wish I could dance. I wish I had that confidence. I wish I didn't care what other people thought. I wish I had moves like that. And you want to dance like that, but you just can't. Well, here's what the church is. You ready? The church is the ultimate dance where everybody should say, I want relationships like that. I want people to be running towards me when I, when I mess up and redeeming me and loving me and forgive me when I mess up. Man, they know how to dance. They know how to have community, real community. That's the church. We should be the best dancers this world's ever seen. 
We should be delighting in each other more than anything else. We should be celebrating each other more than anything else. We should be the most gracious with uh, each other than anybody else. This is the charge of the church. This is what was in the garden and what's being redeemed in the new church in Acts 2. And last but not least, another thing he redeems, he redeems our purpose, our calling. Oof. I don't know about you, but I hear people all the time, why was I created? Why am I alive? What's my purpose? And last week I told you God uh, built Adam on purpose for a purpose, and I think that's a great thing, but I want to I show you again, Genesis 2.15, uh, this is what God says to Adam, take care of the garden. Oh, it's, it's a powerful, powerful picture of our calling is to take care of the things that we are entrusted to steward. We're built to steward. Let's go to John 21. Now God is birthing a new thing. It's the church. It is the kingdom of heaven coming to earth. I believe that he is uh, restoring paradise. Paradise was lost in Genesis and is restoring paradise back to this earth through the church. So what does he tell Peter? What is Peter's calling? What is Peter's charge? Here's what he says to Peter. Jesus repeated the questions, John 21. Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, Peter said, you know I love you. Then take care of my sheep. Stop. Oof, do you see the picture? God, Adam, take care of the garden. God, to, to, to Peter, Jesus to Peter. Peter, take care of my people. Can I... Can I just tell you real quick, if you're somebody who struggles with your calling, it's because you're making it about yourself. You're like, well, what is my calling? Let me break down calling real quick. Calling's what you're built to do. You are built to care for God's house and his people. In discussion. Well, that's too general for me. Start focusing on the general calling and you'll find the more specific part of your life in the calling. Um, there's three things I always think about when calling. Location, vocation, and your calling. Your career, it's what you get paid for. But your calling, it's what you're made for. And so you look at this, Location, vocation. Everybody's like, well, what's, where, where am I called locationally wise? Wherever you're at right now, you, you're there. So care for that area. Your vocation, I don't know what I'm supposed to do for a career. I feel like, oh, what am I created for? Do you know that Paul, never I guarantee you didn't wake up and go, oh, I just feel like I was just born to make tents. Paul was a tent maker. But that was his vocation. Why did he do that? So it actually helped him to do his calling, which was to preach the gospel, to build the church, to build people. Paul's location and vocation enabled his calling. That's the opposite of our culture today. We don't process our calling, where should I move to actually operate my calling? We operate, where should I move for my career? Not only do we do that, we sacrifice our calling for our career. Our career very rarely enables us to walk in our calling. It takes all of our time so we can't operate in our calling. You need to process your calling. You need to process why you're alive. And you should say, Where's, what's my location? Here, okay, God, you called me. If, if I'm living here, you called me here until I hear otherwise. Okay, what's my vocation? Well, this is what I do for a living. It's not what I was put on this earth for, I, I, you know, to um, do something like sport guys. are like, well, this is what I was built for. You play 10 years of NBA basketball. That's why you think you were created. What about the other 70 years of your life? Oh, you're made for so much more. And then the calling part. The calling's very simple. You'll see it throughout scripture. I'll, I'll, I'll read you a, another verse. It's in Haggai 1, 5 through 7. And it's, it's kind of a fascinating verse, but you'll see this rhythm in scripture of God always calling his people back to build up each other and to build his house. And that's our calling. That's the general calling of the church. Go make disciples. Tells Peter, go, go you are the cornerstone. I'm gonna build my church and the church's people. Cornerstone's Jesus and we're all living blocks. So you have this moment, hey guy, where people are just struggling. Um, I'll, I'll read it to you and we'll, we'll unpack it. Hey guy, uh, hey guy or hey guy, whichever way you wanna say it. Hey guy, one, five, three, seven. This is what the Lord of Heaven's army says. Look at what's happening to you. You have planted much, but harvested little. Woof, look what's happening to you. You work 80-hour weeks, but what do you have to show for it? 
Look what's happening to you. You're so busy, but where's your fruit? This is what God's saying. Look at your life. You're so, so busy, but where's the joy? Where's the fulfillment? Where's the fruit? He goes on to say, you eat, but you are not satisfied. You drink, but you are still thirsty. You put on clothes, but you cannot keep warm. Your wages disappear as though they are putting them in pockets filled with holes. This is what the Lord of the heaven's army says. Look at what's happening to you. Stop. This book of Haggai, the Lord is calling his people back saying, your priorities are off. You are living for career, not calling. You are living for yourself, not me. You are building your own homes. You're not building my home. Can I just tell you real quick? You are built to call the church. You are called to build the church. This is a, a charge from the Lord because the church is not a building. It's a people. You're called to build the community of God. Uh, let, me, let, me, uh, let me use an illustration real quick. Um, went on a mission trip this last uh, summer, of course, and um, it, every time I meet somebody who goes on a mission trip, man, they come back what I call on the mission trip high. They come back like, woo, change my, I, I'm gonna be a missionary. Literally, we had somebody go with us this last year on a mission trip, and they stayed there and became a missionary. It's an amazing thing. They taste this part of their life of calling. I mean, this is what I'm doing with my life. Catch this real quick. The mission trip high is real. You go somewhere, and you literally stop being selfish for a week, and you build somebody else up. You build, we actually built homes. So for this illustration, people who have done this before, I've heard this, they go and build a house. They go build it with people. It costs their money, their time, their energy, and they built a house for somebody. And they come back and they're like, woof, I can't wait to do it again. Here's what I'm gonna say, you ready? You can't wait to do it again? You can do it every single day of the week here in the East Bay. You, you are on a lifetime mission trip. You are a missionary. I think the thing that is happening here is our mindset is off of what we've been called to do. All of us want a specific title to our calling. No, the, very rarely in the Bible do people actually get a title to their calling. Most people are just called to build the house, build people, and of course we're called to worship God, to put him first. I think we've made our calling so American, so American consumerism. I gotta, I gotta shop for my calling, what makes me feel the best, what, and not only this, can I put it this way? We have such an identity problem that we try to find our identity in our calling. Your calling is not your identity. Your calling is your son and a daughter of the living God. That's your identity. Your calling is simply this. It's the, what God built you to do as a son and daughter. Oh, a son is supposed to bring glory to the father. A daughter is supposed to bring glory to the father. I don't know about you, but until you say yes to this very simple truth of starting to build people up and building the house of God, literally starting to serve, because here's what a lot of times people happen when they start serving church. I just don't know what I'm called at the church. Am I, am I called to be a greeter? I don't know. Am I called to serving kids? I don't know. Here's what I do know. You're called to love people, serve people. You're called to put his house first. You're called to put him first. I know that. So start serving in all those places. And as you serve, you're going to find out where you fit. They say statistically 80% of people in the church have no idea where they fit in the church. Another way to say it is 80% of the people don't know what part of the body they are. Are they, are they a hand? Are they a foot? Which one are they? You'll never know until you start moving. You'll never know until you start serving. You'll never know until you hear these words from God. Do you love me? Yes. Then take care of my people. And you'll never know until you hear God say this, go build my house because I died for my house. It is my bride. I don't know what Jesus would have to say to us to show us how important the church is. I know I'm a pastor, but this is not my own view. The Bible shows us that Jesus says, I died for the church. She is my bride. This is an ultimate importance to Jesus. It should be an ultimate importance to us. Amen? Amen. Okay, didn't mean to yell yet. Let's keep going. Uh, I want to conclude with this. Matthew 13. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure that a man discovered hidden in a field. In his excitement, he hid it again and sold everything he owned to get enough money to buy the field. 
Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant on a lookout for choice pearls. When he discovered a pearl, a great value, he sold everything he owned and bought it. Stop. So let's just, let's just go real quick over this message. The first thing we looked at was in Genesis 3, how paradise was lost. Paradise was lost because the atmosphere of doubt was created from the enemy. He didn't want to get an argument because you actually go through an argument, you start processing things, you actually find out Jesus is good, Jesus is God. Go on the journey. Oh, I believe a lot of people are going on the journey right now and finding out how good God is. Second thing the enemy does after that is he, he sells the lie after the atmosphere. He sells the lie. And what happened in the third thing? It says that mankind was convinced. She was convinced that it was the right decision for her life to disobey God because he was holding out on her. And we just looked at what God redeemed. Oh, he redeemed community. He redeemed a deep relationship with him. He redeemed our calling, our purpose. And then you read scriptures like this, and I've never really saw it this way till today. The kingdom of heaven is like a man or a woman who finds this treasure in a field, and they're convinced that this field is worth their whole life, that they're willing to sell everything to go purchase this thing. Let me put it this way. Let me use an illustration. I was on a Zoom call with some pastors, and one of these pastors talked about investing in Google 20 years ago, 20, a little over 20 years ago when Google first came out, invested uh, you know, some money in there. Now, he was invested for a little while, started going up. He gets engaged. He takes all the money out of Google, all of it, to go buy an engagement ring. He looks back at that time and goes, if I would have kept my money in, I would be a multimillionaire 10 times over. Oh, but for some reason, he thought it was the best decision to take out his investment and go buy a ring. I think it's a great thing he bought the wedding ring, but he looks back at his life, he's like, I wish somebody would have told me, keep your money invested in Google. It's a great stock. Hear this real quick. Christianity, paradise in your life, the kingdom of heaven becoming everything it's called to be. Here's what the enemy wants to do. He wants to talk you out of taking your life, investing in the greatest thing ever, which is the kingdom of heaven. It says this, the kingdom of heaven can be this, a man who sees a great treasure and goes, "Woo! I'm investing everything I got into this. My whole life, my time, my talents, my treasures, everything. I'm selling everything else, everything else that the world sold me. Career, status, fame, everything the world sold me. I'm selling it because I found the right thing because I'm convinced the kingdom of God is the greatest thing for me. Your life will not be what it's called to be. You will not experience paradise until you invest everything you got in the kingdom. Everything. Until you believe that God's words are true, you'll never actually experience all paradise. Until you believe that God saying yes to purity is better than saying yes to lust, you'll never believe it. Until you believe that saying yes to generosity is better than hoarding all your own stuff to yourself, you'll never actually feel that fulfillment. Until you understand that saying yes to being a servant instead of being some prestigious person is better for your soul, you'll never receive the kingdom of heaven. I wanna say yes to being a servant. I wanna be convinced that being a servant is the greatest decision of my life. I wanna be convinced that forgiving the worst of these is the best decision of my life. I wanna be convinced that when I wake up in the morning that God has my best interest in mind. If, even if it's the worst valley, even if I gotta um, uh, die uh, to myself that I have to go through something, I wanna be convinced that's the greatest decision of my life. And here's why I'm gonna be convinced, because God is good. Oh, because he paid the price on the cross. Adam and Eve made a decision with the tree in the garden. Well, Jesus made a decision in the garden to die on the tree for us. How great is our God that one man lost it for us in the garden and then another man named Jesus redeemed all of it for us in the garden. Oh, how great is our God. I wanna ask uh, anybody who's watching today, if you've never said yes to Jesus, never said yes to heaven, no to hell, yes to blessing, no to cursing, you've never said yes to salvation, 
You've said yes to actually receiving this paradise. I love that, that verbiage Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise. There's something about saying yes to Jesus that the kingdom of heaven can reign in your life today. So you wanna say yes to Jesus, I'm gonna say there's three ways to say yes. One is, you can look right there to the right on the YouTube, you can say yes. We're gonna have a pastor follow up and everybody in that YouTube uh, um, uh, chat, we're gonna celebrate with you. Oh, it's such a good thing to celebrate with other believers when you get saved. It says the kingdom of heaven is like a party when somebody says yes. Second thing you can do, if you're with people, tell them you said yes. Third thing you can do is you can go on our website and say, I said yes, and we'll have a pastor follow up with you. Fourth thing, call somebody. Tell them you said yes. Have them pray the prayer with you. Oh, and then start believing the word of God and start living the word of God. Thanks so much for checking out um, our message today. Love you, Mission Church. Miss you. Can't wait to see you uh, next week. See you on Wednesday, and I'll see you on Sunday. Take care. Thanks again for listening to the Mission Church Podcast. If you enjoyed it, make sure you subscribe so you can keep up on our weekly sermons. If you're in the Bay Area, we invite you to come join us on Sundays. You can find all the details on our website at missionchurchca.com. Again, thanks so much for listening, and we hope to see you soon.